Reading from God's Word, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said again, Go again. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that we've read together today. Thank you that this is not just a story from ancient history, not just an incident in the life of the nation of Israel, but Father, these are your words to us today. So I pray that as our pastor speaks to us and brings your word that our hearts would be open that we would understand that you are the God who speaks. Thank you for your word, and I pray your blessing today now. In Jesus' name, amen. The text that Bill read for us is a familiar one referenced in the New Testament in the book of James. I'm not going to at all go there. I just want you to know that I'm aware of it. Uh, in James chapter 5, uh, it's this story that uh, James illustrates uh, or used to illustrate the power of prayer. But uh, this, after all, is an exposition on um, uh, First Kings and, and not James. If you're visiting with us, uh, welcome. We are working our way through this book uh, together of uh, First Kings, a portion of it. And it really centers on uh, two or three people, um, uh, Ahab who was uh, king of Israel in the north, uh, Jezebel, his wife, and Elijah, God's prophet. And so we're working in and out of uh, these verses as we look at them. Uh, When we started uh, chapter 18, if you were with us about two, three, four weeks ago, um, we started there and it began with these words that Elijah had received from God. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. And then as we uh, heard the scripture read to us today at the end of chapter 18, uh, rain comes. Between chapter 1, or between verse 1 of chapter 18 and verse 45 and 46 of chapter 18, there is a lot that has gone on. As I mentioned, there is a story to be told, and we have heard that story over these last few weeks. We've heard about Ahab and uh, his uh, goings about trying to find Elijah. We heard about a hidden prophet named Obadiah, or, or a hundred, sorry, hidden prophets that Obadiah had hidden. We heard about a secret uh, follower of God that was in Ahab's palace. In fact, the manager of Ahab's palace, 
who was Obadiah. We heard about Elijah who was um, coming out of hiding finally because the word of the Lord had told him to go to uh, see Ahab. And then we, uh, last uh, couple weeks ago, we looked at Mount Carmel as we had this um, great contest that took place between the prophets of Baal and the prophets of God. It must have been just a crazy time for those that were involved in these set of circumstances. Particularly this last day that uh, we heard about that's uh, made up of uh, the last part of chapter 18. It must have been exhausting. Uh, first up, there were the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah, about 815 of them, or 850 of them, crying out uh, that their gods would send rain, cutting themselves, blood gushing out, people cheering, people encouraging them on uh, from the sidelines, Elijah mocking them, uh, prophets in a frenzy, and I wonder what Ahab was doing in the midst of all this. These were his prophets, after all. Must have been just a crazy, crazy morning and afternoon. And then Elijah steps up to the plate, and he carefully cuts his uh, bull up. He builds an altar. He places the wood on the altar. He sticks the bull on the wood. He digs a trench around the altar. He sits there. He pours water all over it. Everything is ready, and then Elijah cries out to God. He says, God, show yourself to be real. God, change their hearts, and all of a sudden, fire from heaven falls. It consumes the ox. It consumes the wood. It consumes the stones. It consumes the water. It turns it all to dust, the Bible tells us. Nothing left but ash. It must have been just an amazing day. I couldn't imagine going there with my family and having my six-year-old boy and my eight-year-old boy and my ten-year-old boy. Their eyes must have just been wider than saucers. Dad, what's going on today? Everyone must have been exhausted. I don't know if you've ever been part of uh, just even a football event or a basketball event or some other sporting event. Just physically you pour yourself into it and it is exhausting. You add on there the level of spiritual reality and they must have been just tuckered out spiritually as well. And that was just a warm-up act. The real show was rain. Who was able to control the rain? Yeah, God is powerful. He can send fire from heaven, but can he make it rain? Does he answer prayer? And is this grace that we find in this text, grace offered to Ahab? As the story begins, as we're at the end of the day, we read that Elijah says to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a rushing rain. And Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went to the top of Mount Carmel. There's a shift that's taking place in the text now. We're moving from the ground of Mount Carmel to the soil of a human heart, Ahab's heart. We're realizing that God is a God who tests the heart. This is all over the scriptures. I mean, we can go to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8 where we get a summary of the people's wanderings through the uh, 40 years in the desert. And the summary of that was God was using all of the, the, those events to test their hearts to actually see what was inside of them. Would they love God? Would they follow God? Would they obey God? We go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and we find there again that it tells us that God is one who tests our heart. Will we obey him? Will we walk with him? Will we trust in him? God has dealt with the people of Israel 
on Mount Carmel as the two sacrifices has been offered and they failed the test, by the way, and we'll talk about this more next week. Now he's going to go and deal with King Ahab and say, what's in King Ahab's heart? God is going to test Ahab and see if Ahab will actually trust the Lord as Elijah had prayed. Well, how so? We begin by just recognizing here that Ahab had a choice. It might not be obvious at first, but it's a clear choice here. The prophet Elijah comes up to Ahab and he says, Now Ahab, you go up and drink. I'm going to go and to the top of Mount Carmel and pray. Ahab could have chosen to go with Elijah. Uh, I think that's what's happening here. But what's this all about though in the first place? Ahab, go up and eat and drink. We think, well, who's he going to go eat with? Do they have a table set up on Mount Carmel? What are they going to eat? The bull that the, that the, the, the prophets to um, Baal and Asherah tried to kill, or they killed, but it didn't get consumed with fire? Possibly Elijah is saying to Ahab, listen, relax. God is going to send rain. I can hear it. This is a voice of faith. This is a confidence that God is a God who, com- who comes through with his promises. Or maybe it's his way of saying to Ahab, Ahab, you haven't seen nothing yet. There's a battle coming. There's a fight about to be fought. I'm going to seek God. You go and eat, but I'm going up to the top of the mountain to seek God. What Elijah didn't know yet was that God had promised to send rain. He just didn't know exactly when. He was confident it would come. He could hear it with his ears of faith, but as yet there was no moisture in the air. Have you ever said to somebody, I don't know, you're, you're working on a job, you might be at work or you, you might be at home or you might be here at church and there's a lot to be done, but you know, we're, you're, you're wrapping up things and you, you say to somebody that you're with, he says, you can go home now, I'll just stay and finish up. It's not really a test, but sometimes you say that and you say, well, I really hope they say, well, I'd love to stay and help you and, you know, we'll, we'll finish this up. But you really meant it as well. Well, you can go home if you want and you can uh, leave me to do all the work and finish up. Um, sometimes it's, it's, it's not a, an external test necessarily, but it's a, wait, what's going on in their heart? What's important to them? What's a priority? What are they thinking about here? Sometimes providing that option reveals what's in somebody's heart. For example, Elijah was about to die. And he's walking around with Elisha. You can read this in, uh, in 2 Kings. And Elisha says to, or Elijah says to Elijah, stay here. Um, the Lord is sending me on to Bethel. And you might remember what Elijah, Elisha said. He says, as the Lord lives and as you yourself lives, I will not leave you. He had a choice. Stay here or I'm going to Bethel. Come with me. This happens twice in Elijah's life. He's given an option. He chooses to go with Elijah. You might recall the discussion that Ruth had with her, or Naomi had with her two daughters, Naomi and Orpha. Uh, Their husbands had both died. Uh, Naomi was a widow. Naomi was going back to uh, Bethlehem. She had no land. She had no money. She had no hope. She had no prospects. And so she says to her daughter-in-law, listen, you guys go back to your families. Get married again, and you'll be provided for. I have nothing to offer you. Initially, you read the story, and both of the daughter-in-laws protest, and they say, no, Naomi, we're going to stay with you. We want to go with you. Where you go, we want to be. Naomi pressed them a little bit, and she said, listen again, I have nothing to offer you. So the text tells us, finally, Orpha gave in. She kissed her mother-in-law, 
and she went home. But the text says, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi unsympathetically says to her, follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. Where you are buried, I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. More than anything, Ruth wanted to be with Naomi. More than anything, Elisha wanted to be with Elijah. So when Elijah says to Ahab, you go up and eat, I'm going up to the top of the mountain to pray, Ahab had a choice. Just as the people of Israel had been given a choice, choose this day who you will serve. Ahab had a choice. He could go eat with all of those that were eating somewhere in the middle of the mountain, or he could go up with Elijah and pray that God would send rain. The choice that Elijah had given the people was the same choice that he was now giving Ahab to see what was in his heart. But clearly, while food pulls at the heart of Ahab, faith pulls at the heart of Elijah. And I wonder sometimes, what agenda drives us? What is it that motivates our decisions and the choices that we make? Is our heart with the people of God and the things of God and the ways of God? And is that our natural impulse, our natural jaw to draw to follow the way that God is leading, to go the way that God's people are going? Or is the natural pull of our heart, the natural draw of our heart to the things of this world? What we shall eat, what we shall drink, and what we shall wear. As I see it, this was the start of a test to see what was in Ahab's heart. And it's like Elijah is saying, and what's in your heart, Ahab? Food or prayer? And then we see them parting ways, and it tells us that Elijah went further up the mountain to pray, and he bowed himself down on the earth, and he put his face between his knees. There's a tension that's expressed now in these verses. I don't know if you, uh, if you felt the tension or if you heard the tension, the tension is simply this. God has told Elijah it's going to rain. He said, go tell Ahab in verse 1 of chapter 18, it's going to rain. And yet we, we, and we have Elijah hearing that there's a mighty rainstorm coming. And yet, he's going up to the top of Mount Carmel to pray that it might rain. What's going on here? God's promised that it's going to rain. And now we have Elijah praying that it's going to rain. Why didn't Elijah just go back and eat with everybody else? Why didn't Elijah just sit down and uh, pull up a rock and wait for a good thunderstorm to happen? What's prayer got to do with it? God's already promised. Why pray? I don't have a lot of answers about prayer. I want to just throw out a few suggestions to you about some certain things and then tell you what I am certain about. There's a mystery, though, between the promises of God and prayer. There's a mystery between how the promises of God go together with the prayers of his people. One of the mysteries is simply this, that God has ordained that his promises be realized in many cases through the prayers of his people. One of the things that praying the promises of God does is it reminds God of his promises. You know, whoa, wait a minute. 
God doesn't forget that he's said anything, does he? Well, no, he doesn't. But God reminds himself of promises that he made. After all, didn't God put a rainbow in the sky to remind himself never to flood the earth again? And by the way, I was thinking about that. I've been listening to a a series of messages um, this past week. But I know that there are many, um, it seems like increasing numbers, who wrestle with the fact that maybe the flood was not universal. That's talked about in the book of Genesis. I'm convinced that it is a universal flood. I can't read it any other way. The language seems absolutely clear to me. But secondly, what's the point of a rainbow if the flood wasn't universal? Why would God put a rainbow in the sky to remind himself never to flood the earth again if it wasn't a universal flood? Because since that day, floods have covered many parts of the world in many different places, killing hundreds and sometimes thousands of people as the earth has flooded. So at what point does God need to remind himself never to flood the earth again? After 10,000 people die? After 1,000 people die? After there's 20 feet of water? After there, It makes no sense to me that God puts a rainbow in the sky to remind him never to flood the earth again if there's floods that still kill people. Anyhow, that's a sidetrack, sorry. The point simply is this. God puts a rainbow in the sky to remind him of his promise never to flood the earth again. And so I believe that in our prayers, we hold before God his promises. And we plead with God to fulfill his promises. And it's as though we remind God of what he has said in his word, of what he has told us he would do. Isn't that, after all, what we do with the return of the Lord? Do we not ask that you become with us an expectant church, that we pray that God would come, that he would send his son? Isn't that how the New Testament ends with the people crying out, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly, Lord? Aren't we to watch and pray? God has promised, shouldn't we just sit down and hope that it happens? No, God involves us. God invites us to pray and to plead with him. How long, O Lord? And to see that promise realized. Praying the promises is one of the ways we pray the will of God. Charles Spurgeon wrote, The best praying person is the person who most be- is most believingly familiar with the promises of God. After all, prayer is nothing but taking God's promises to him and saying to him, Did you not say? Prayer is the promise realized. See, praying the promises of God is actually praying the will of God. And we know that if we ask anything according to his will, that we receive what we ask. I wonder sometimes if our praying is sometimes ineffectual because we never open our Bible as we pray. One of the things that is to fill our prayer is the word of God. One of the things that is to be the content of our praying is the promises of God. And so we open our Bible, we read it, we familiarize ourselves with it, and then we plead with God to fulfill his word on our behalf. Dale Ralph Davis writes, God's will is certain, but he delights to do his will in answer to the prayers of his people. The prayers of the saints constitute the appointed channel by which God works his will. He's not limited to this channel, but we might say he highly prefers it. So we 
pray the promises of God to remind him. We pray the promises of God because the promises of God reveal to us the will of God. There's a posture here, though, too. I don't know if you think about posture in prayer. I think posture in prayer matters. I understand that we are to be praying without ceasing. I understand that much of our praying is done as we drive to work, as we drive home, as we walk the halls of our school, as we walk the halls of our workplace. But there is a place for holding ourselves up into a settled place where we call out on God. There is a place sometimes to stop everything we're doing, drop to our knees and call out to God. And here we read that Elijah tucked his head between his knees and started calling out. To God. I don't know if you've ever seen anybody pray like that. I have a few occasions have witnessed that, and there's been a few occasions in my own life where that's been my posture in prayer. It's simply a posture of dem- uh, desperation. It's a posture of humility. It's a posture of just being absolutely at your wit's end, absolutely not being able to do anything about it, needing God to act on your behalf. And you drop to your knees and you put your head between your knees and you plead with God. Another side note, body language is important. Uh, Communication experts, which I'm not, but they tell us that about 7% of communication is verbal. About 38% of communication is the tone of voice that we use. And about 55% of communication is body language. I think that's probably pretty close. Now, they, they overlap and they mix together, but what that's telling me is that um, your, your body language often speaks louder than your words. Uh, you can look at people and they might say that they're listening to you, but their body parts, they're, they're sprawled out all over the place and they're not looking at you. They're not listening to you. Their body language is saying something totally different. You can be talking to one of your, your children. In our house, one of, the, one of the sort of the guidelines that we tried to have was we need to have eye contact. I mean, you know, don't yell down the stairs. Don't yell down the, uh, up the stairs. Don't talk to me while I'm reading the paper. While eye contact. Um, that's a part of it, but that helps you also see what they're doing with their body. I think body language, more than anything, reveals what's going on inside of you. And I think that's true of prayer. So when you're, when you're um, um, lying prostrate on the ground with a, a something laid out before God and crying out to God, that speaks as much about what's going on inside of you as it does what's going on outside of you. And I think that the posture revealed what was going on inside of Elijah as he's crying out to God to answer his prayer. There's a persistence here. I, I don't know if you, if you saw it here. Uh, Elijah says to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and he said, there's nothing. He said, go again seven times. And the seventh time he said, behold, there's a little cloud like a man's hand that's rising from the sea. Some of you understand persistence in prayer. In Luke, there's two parables about persistence in prayer. One is from a widow, and the other is from a neighbor. And uh, Jesus uses that to illustrate the fact that there are times when we need to be persistent before God. I don't understand persistence necessarily. Um, I I know what it is. I, I, I don't know exactly what it is to be fully earnest in prayer or struggle in my prayer. I don't know when you stop. I don't know, uh, I don't know how you know all of that. Um, how long did Elijah wait between each time he sent his servant? Five minutes? Ten minutes? An hour? Why didn't he stop at three? Maybe, would he have stopped at 18? I don't know. 
it just tells me that he persisted until God answered his prayer. Sometimes we need to be persistent in prayer until God answers our prayer. There's a mystery about prayer here too. I don't get the mystery. We, we see in, in um, Elijah's life just this, uh, um, this wide swath of praying. Uh, follow with me really quickly. We have the prayer, first of all, that, we, that he prayed that the um, widow's son be raised. There was no promise that he was praying. There was no command that he pray. There was simply a request from this woman to him, my son has died. And she didn't even ask him to pray. He just took the boy up to his room and called out to God. And remember what it said? And God listened to him and raised his son up. And then we have praying to the living God that he would change hearts. And so we found that on Mount Carmel. Elijah prayed and whammo, fire comes out from heaven. And it consumes everything. Again, there's no promise that God would send that it would pray. There was just this um, contest that was set up. And Elijah said, the God that answers by fire, he's the real God. And he prays and fire comes down from heaven. No persistence, no promise, just God answered. And then we have the prayer for rain. It is rooted in a promise, but it still requires persistence. And after persistence, it rains. And then we'll find out next week that Elijah prays again. And he prays that he would die. Actually, he wants God to kill him. But God doesn't answer that prayer. In fact, he reverse answers it because Elijah never dies. He gets taken up to heaven. So prayer is confusing. But this much I do know about prayer, loved ones. First of all, we pray to a sovereign God. And because we pray to a sovereign God, we know a couple things. One, his word never fails. He knows the end from the beginning. If God speaks it and says it, it will happen. You can take his word and you can hold him to it and he will answer his word. And secondly, because he is sovereign, there is nothing that he can't do. Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great hands. Nothing is too difficult for thee. So when you go to prayer, with whatever you go to God with prayer, know that he is sovereign. The second thing is that God is my father, that I am his son, you might be his daughter, but that we are sons and daughters of God. Ask, the Bible says, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened to you. Which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a servant? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask, you, ask him? Do you understand that? God sometimes answers our prayers because he's sovereign. God often answers our prayers because he's our Father, and he loves to give good gifts to us. So Elijah prayed. The final thing here is this lavish grace. In the text, this is in the last few verses, verses 45 to 46. It started, I believe, the first offer of grace started with, I believe, an unspoken option to Ahab that he could either go and eat or he could go follow Elijah. Do you know what grace means? I think one of the most simplest ways, grace is getting what you don't deserve. That's grace, getting what you don't deserve. And so we ask ourselves, grace 
to Ahab? Really? God is going to offer grace to Ahab? There's something inside of us, I think, when you get somebody as evil as Ahab is portrayed that recoils when we think of even the very thought of God maybe be, being gracious to him. We do need to check our hearts, though. Sometimes we're pharisaical as we pray and as the Pharisee and the unrighteous man were praying, the Pharisee lifts up his eyes and says, God, I thank you. I'm not like so-and-so. God, thank you that you've given me grace, but it's clear why you haven't shown grace to him. I think sometimes we can be a little like Jonah. It's shocking to read the words of Jonah who was sent to Nineveh. Remember he ran? This is why he ran. It displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to harshness, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Now, therefore, God, please take my life from me. It's better that I die than to live. I would rather die than see your grace extended to the Ninevites. That's harsh. We think of this young man who killed 17 students in Florida. Has it crossed any of our minds to pray that God might be gracious to him? That God might reveal his mercy to him? That God might pull him out of his darkness and his evilness and show him the light of Christ? What do we think of Ahab then? Do you think he deserves grace, this Baal-kissing prophet-killing, wife-worshipping, prophet-hunting, despicable man who calls himself a king. His life is captured in a single sentence. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings who were before him. Could you go up to Ahab, look him in the eyes, and with all of your heart say, Ahab, be reconciled to God. Jesus loves you. God's grace and mercy is sufficient for you. Just come to him, turn to him, and he'll receive you. Is this the God of the Bible? Apparently so. We see it in two ways. One, through the rain. There's this great rain. A little while it says the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. Rain is the issue here. Everyone knew it. There was a contest. There was a, a God war that was taking place. It started back in chapter 17. And the issue had always been who controls the dew and the rain? Who is it that controls life? Who is it that gives life? Who is it that takes life away? It's rain is the issue. Is God sovereign? Can God send the rain? I was fascinated by the text that Barry read uh, as he, uh, before he prayed from Psalm 5. The Lord does whatever he pleases. Uh, think about this. Um, if you were to think about God, and the Bible describes God as one who does good things, one who does unsearchable things, one who does marvelous things, a God who uh, does what he pleases, how would you follow that up to demonstrate that God does whatever he pleases, that he's good, that he's marvelous, that he's unsearchable? All of those come from the Bible, and you know how the Bible follows it up? 
he sends rain. There's something about rain that if we think about it, it is an incredible act of power and might and grace and mercy and judgment. And whenever they thought about God in those places, they thought, yeah, rain illustrates that about our God. God sends rain. His hand of judgment is stayed upon the people of Israel. His hand of mercy is extended. His power is displayed. It's craziness, isn't it? Why does Ahab, of all people, deserve rain? He's not changed. Why do the people of Israel deserve rain? They've not changed. And Ahab had just had an opportunity to sit around a table or somewhere with a bunch of people and reflect on the day, reflect on God's power, reflect on God's might, reflect on God's judgment, reflect on God's fire. And now he's got an opportunity to reflect on the hand of God through rain. Would this change him? Would it affect him? Would he look at this incredible act of power and say, wow, I missed it. God, you are powerful. I see this all the time. And some of you may see it as well. There's a significant turn in events for somebody in their life. It might be a spouse, it might be a child, it might be a workmate, it might be a neighbor. They've been running from God, running from God, resisting God, saying no to God, and something just happens in their life that just is only God. Maybe it's a healing. Maybe it's provision of an incredible job. Maybe it's an economic boon. Maybe it's rain. And it does nothing for them. They don't acknowledge God. They don't talk about God. They don't think it could be God. They just go on as though life was always due them in that circumstance. How quickly God is pushed out of their life. How quickly God is ignored in their circumstances. And they don't even acknowledge God. Ahab had an incredible opportunity to think about God in this rain. He had an incredible opportunity from God to reflect on his power and his might and his mercy. It was an offer of lavish grace to Ahab. And my question is to all of us today, has there been a great rain in your life recently? The second thing that is an offer of grace is this great race. There's got to be something in this because the Bible makes a point of telling us. It says that Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. The hand of the Lord was on Elijah. He gathered up his garment and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Why such detail here? Why, why, why is this being recorded for us? Ahab rose or rode to Jezreel. Ahab or Elijah ran to Jezreel. Doesn't that catch your attention? Just a little bit. The chariot ride to Jezreel is nothing special. Hop in the chariot, shout giddy up, off you go. You end up in Jezreel. But outrunning a chariot? Over 17 miles, I still think in miles. That's as far as Nanus Bay to Bowser, give or take. This is Hussein Bolt on steroids for a marathon. 
God's trying to tell us something here, loved ones. Something's up in this text. Elijah got there first. The hand of the Lord, it says, was on Elijah. This is no natural feat. This was supernatural. Why did God want Elijah there first? Why does it say that Elijah ran before Ahab? Well, I think those who suggest that what we need to be thinking about here is the role of prophet and king here. I've been reading, um, I'm in 1 Samuel in my own devotions right now, and there's a real distinction made between Samuel the prophet and Saul the king. And that the way they handled the word of God was critical, that Samuel was the one who was the one who had the word of God and that Saul was the one who reigned the people and that Saul needed Samuel to tell him what God was doing and what God was up to. And it's the word of God that was meant to constrain the power of a king. And so I think here what God is saying to Ahab through this illustration is that Ahab, I will send my prophet before you. I will send my word before you. I will go before you to Jezebel. Let my word lead me. Let my word guide you. Isn't this what we say, loved ones? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Isn't that what we say when we acknowledge Christ as our Lord and Savior? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Isn't it our desire to be led by the word, to follow the word, to be directed by the word? Don't we get into all kinds of trouble when we ignore the word of God, when we don't let it inform us, when we don't let it guide us, when we don't let it lead us? I think this was God's way of saying, Ahab, I will lead you. I will go before you. Follow me. What would Ahab do with these two gifts of grace? With this great rain and this prophet who represented the word going before him. Well, we know what Paul does with grace. I'll come back to Ahab in just a moment. Paul talks about how the grace of the Lord overflowed to him. And then he says, this is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them. But I receive mercy because of this so that in me, the worst of them, Christ might demonstrate the utmost patience as an example of those who would believe in him for eternal life. Grace comes to us in Christ Jesus. If you're here today, you need to put Christ first. You need to let him lead you. You need to let him guide you. You need to understand that he's done everything necessary for you in order to bring you before God. But will you follow him? Back to Ahab for a minute. Imagine these, this crucial yet fleeting scene. Elijah is standing there, bent over, gasping for air, heaving for oxygen. Momentarily, a, a Ahab's chariot comes barreling past him and down the lane and turns towards his summer residence. Elijah and Ahab can both see it there. There's a light in the queen's quarter. Ahab has an offer of grace in his hand. But his feet will soon be in the devil's bedroom. Back to us here for a moment. I wouldn't doubt if there's some Ahabs here today. You've provoked God with your 
life and with your actions. You felt the heavy hand upon you. God has sent a great rain in your life. God has provided you opportunity to hear his word. The very fact that you're here this morning is a gift of God's grace to you. And you have a decision to make, just as Ahab did. Will you respond to God's offer of lavish grace? Or will you continue in your path of hard-heartedness towards God? Just as Elijah offered the people on Mount Carmel an opportunity to choose who they will serve, and as God offered Ahab an opportunity for him to choose whom he will serve, you have an opportunity today to choose who you will serve. Either the living God who will go before you and lead you in Christ or your own sinful, hard-hearted ways. Father, we thank you for your word today. I thank you for the way that um, you reveal so much of yourself in these historical accounts that we find in your word. We don't need to look too deep to see your fingers everywhere on it. We don't need to be scholars to see the power of prayer, the effectiveness of prayer, to see the offer of grace, incredible grace, and also see the danger of hard-heartedness. Father, would you make us a people who follow hard after Christ, a people who choose Christ, a people who hold your word before us, who walk behind it, who plead it, who pray it, who live it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.